This is an alternative universe. You see, there aren't any textbooks that teach about these principles. It's dangerous if the government gets in the business of propaganda. We need journalistic integrity now more than ever. Warning, you're listening to the Agenda 31 podcast with Corey Ibe and Todd McGreevy. The thing, remember, names are for things. That is why the United States respects the sovereignty of the British people and their right of self-determination. For good reasons, we don't want the government to be the lead on that. Due to the unique division of political authority in the United States, U.S. citizens are residents in every state and should not attempt to copy the strategies employed by the hosts of the Agenda 31 broadcast without first consulting legal counsel. Do you have a license for this? Uh, motivation. What's, uh, what, what, what is my motivation? Because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not okay with slavery, just so we're clear. As a U.S. citizen, you, you just don't own anything. You're just a, a user, and the government owns everything. And the assumption is everybody's a U.S. citizen. You know, you're going to have to shut up or I'm going to have you arrested. You must conform. Yes, sir. It is my sworn duty to see that you do conform. I- Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Agenda 31. This is your co-host, Todd McGreevy, and I'm being joined by Corey I. Greetings, Todd. In the morning to you, Corey. Turn up your levels a little bit. Uh, We are recording live to tape, broadcasting at agenda31.org slash stream. It is Sunday. Yes, I had to to remember what the hell day it was, Corey. It is Sunday, May 7th, 2017, and this is episode 131 of Agenda 31. We probably should have made something special out of that, huh? Oh, I guess so. Yeah. 131 out of 31, well... It, every show is special. Todd. I knew that was coming. I teed that one up for you. I am I am back in the in the uh, confines of Scott County, Iowa, overlooking the banks of the Mississippi River. Been traveling. Corey, are you uh, still out on the left coast this week? Broadcasting from within the city limits of Los Angeles in a suburb called Van Nuys, California. We appreciate everybody tuning in live at the stream, and we appreciate everybody subscribing uh, to us on their various RSS feeds, including iTunes and Android and so forth. You might be listening to us on the playback on the No Agenda Stream at noagendastream.com, which you can listen to this uh, show right after the deep state media assassination, deconstruction by Curry and Dvorak, every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central on the noagendastream.com. We're played back around 2 p.m. Central on that stream, so welcome all the Gitmo slaves who are tuning in. Corey, it's you get you and uh, and and the uh, special guest last week, uh, known as JP, uh, are a hard act to follow. I was re-listening to the uh, last half hour of that again this morning. Uh, just extremely powerful and important and factual and um, right there in our face information that I, I found to be really, really refreshing to hear and helpful. Yeah, it it, it was. Uh... I, I think we're incredibly fortunate to have the guests that we had. The um, the amount of research, uh, uh, the information that's put out is phenomenal, and and there is definitely a sense of draw your own conclusions. In other words, what we're saying is, hey, here are the facts. Here's what we think is happening. You know, wh- what do you think? Get and get people engaged. Get people involved to know that. 
man, there's a couple of different ways that if you have U.S. sourced income, you're going to pay income tax on it, but there's a couple of different ways that you can pay that tax. And one of them is associated with some very significant political advantages uh, uh, that may not be, I don't know, readily apparent. You know, one one of the things, a, a comment I got, Todd, not, not well, haven't made it public, but uh, one comment was, well, hey, that's really stupid to pay income taxes based as a non-resident alien because you're going to be taxed at like 36%, something like that. Oh. Uh, did you did you hear that? It, I so did. It, I did hear that. I didn't know that it was uh, 36%. That's interesting. Well, I don't know if it's 36% or not. I, no, I was saying, did you hear that? It was in my uh, headphones. I looked sounded like a completely it was, different conversation it, crossed over. It was a little choppy, but I heard you. I don't know what's going on there. We got, got the, it. Okay. The NSA is extremely active this morning, it sounds like. <laughs> yes, it sounds like. Anyway, and they pointed out that you know, you'd be paying a 36% tax break or tax rate as a non-resident alien that there's just a flat tax, that's how much you have to pay. And if you're a US citizen, you can take advantages take advantage of tax breaks. Right. And but the whole point to that is there's another taxing authority there's a whole nother taxing authority besides the United States, and that is the state governments, as the term state is used in the you know Article Four, Section Two, Clause One, um, and that in in that jurisdiction, you could be, end up paying no tax at all to the federal government. You'd still have a tax liability to the state government, but not to the federal government. So, I think that is just one of the most fascinating factual presentations. That I've ever seen, and I've I've seen a few presentations from our guest, and uh, uh, just really great to have it on the show. Well, to to back up a second, one of the the high points that was a takeaway was you don't really owe any tax unless you're if you're a U.S. citizen, you're 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 in the gulag, you're done. You, you just, Everything you, you do is tax. It's done. You you got to huh. play the game and fill out the forms and. Exactly. Yes, you can get some exemptions and you can get some discounts and you can play the 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 shuffle of the the shell game all day and all of us do, all of us have, you know, that's that's how it is. We get it. But if you are not a you if you're if you're able to make sure that you're uh, and I, there's a difference between nationality and citizenship as as our guest explained yesterday, if you uh if you're able to establish your Correct me if I'm wrong on this. Your citizenship properly as a non-resident alien, and but if where I'm going with this, Corey, is part of me as I'm listening to all this is why would I ever engage if I don't need to with this Leviathan IRS? Well, you would have to if you were a Article Four state citizen, also known as a non-resident alien, for purposes of this discussion. If you got income that was derived from a U.S. citizen, U.S. Uh, D.C. based business, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So, I, so if you didn't, so if you didn't have, if, if you didn't have any income from a U.S. based business, and and I think there's people out there that that do, they're they're on, you know, they they go to a farmer's market, they deal in cash, whatever it is. Yeah, of course. All right. Uh, th- then there's nothing to file. Right. Right. And, and it's a dual. It's a, nothing yeah. to file, but it is to the federal government. It's invisible. Um, right. And 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 that would be. Uh, they're like Faith Pennington. I always have such a hard time yanking her name off yeah. my tongue. Um, Faith Pennington. If Faith Pennington, remember, she had a hard time getting a social security number. Mm-hmm. So 
it would be very easy for her to say, look, I'm a non-resident alien, go to work for a company. If that company has an EIN number, I mean, that's a great way to determine whether or not you're going to have to pay U.S. sourced income is if you're receiving income from somebody who has an, pardon me, an EIN number. Employee identification number. Yeah, an employee, employer identification number issued by the IRS or the um, then, you know, that's a pretty much a giant red flag that says that is U.S. sourced income. So if you don't have a social security number and you file as a non-resident alien, then the person who's paying you instead of like if you worked for your neighbor and they're just going to 1099 you for, you know, doing work on their property, instead of them 1099ing you, they would pay you the full amount, but then withhold whatever the tax rate is for a non-resident alien, and then they have to send that money into the government. There's just nothing on your end to do. Right. Um, and, and it's really fascinating when you, when you try and paint the picture. I, I wish I would have done that better during the show, but if you paint the picture of Frank Bruchaber at the time, he, from his position... He kind of looked like, hey, I am getting income from a state corporation. I, you know, I don't need to pay federal excise tax on that. He was an investor. He probably had investments. I don't know this for sure, but he probably had investments in other state corporations that he paid no federal tax on. There just wasn't a form for it, right? And that's how it was originally set up, even though we already know that these were all federal, basically federalized uh, agencies pretending to be Article Four state agencies. But at the time, they were acting the way an Article Four agency should run. I'm kind of using that term as a catch-all, Article Four, but basically I'm referring to the original Republican form of government, state governments. That um, if he was investing in those at the time, he there would be no money withheld. If, if he earned income from a state uh, uh, corporation and that income, let's say, resulted in you know $10,000, he didn't pay the federal government any taxes on that. that. That's why it was like so incredulous that he invested in something, at least to me, this is what I'm inferring from what I've read, is that it was pretty, pretty shocking. Like, what do you mean this corporation is just this state corporation is going to take away this huge percentage of money, you know that I'm 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 a state citizen. This is I don't need to pay the federal government money. I would be willing to bet that he had other investments, and so at the time, to invest in a U.S. sourced corporation was pretty rare. Pretty much the only thing going was the railroad at the time. Well, now through all the little changes and all the people voluntarily accepting social security numbers, driver's licenses, all these different things that put you on the plantation to where everything is taxable. You get down to today, and if you try and act like an, the same way as Frank Bruchaber, who probably had income from local um, state agents or state corporations that he did not have to pay income tax on to the federal government. The state taxes are different. If you try and act that same way today, now every business is a, virtually every business within reason, and certainly here in the Los Angeles area, is going to be U.S. sourced income. 
So the relationship you would have with them is as a non-resident alien. But if people find that it's more advantageous to start a business as a um, an alien business to the federal government that is a domiciled in one of the several states, then you owe tax to that state, but you don't have anything to do with the government. That might be a business advantage, and you can I can certainly see how businesses would begin to grow that way. And if you work for one of those businesses and conduct yourself like Frank Bruce Haber, you're not a U.S. citizen, you're a state citizen, no, no connection to the federal government, then you wouldn't owe the federal government taxes. You, you may still owe the state government taxes, depending on how the state's set up, but this giant leviathan, this thing that's just so huge, like the federal government, you would have nothing to do with. And then that transaction would be invisible. To me, that is just so amazing to have this portion of that whole concept handled by somebody as capable as our guest was to be able to present it because it is very well presented and i think one of the most information-packed shows that we've had pretty oh, phenomenal yeah. and of course the presumption that from what you just shared is that the state that that business entity is operating in and quote under if you will is an article four section two clause one kind of state Yes. Okay. So if you go get an LLC in the state of Iowa through the normal conventional channels we interface with today, that's really a subsidiary of the federal government. You're still registering your government within the federal zone, correct? Well, to me, my initial response to that is yes, you are correct. Mm -hmm. Our guest and I, we've had a lot of discussions on this, and the regulations seem to indicate, I, I certainly agree with our guest that the regulations indicate, and my experience is, um, uh, is true to this, in that you first create a company, then you make the federal election by getting an employer identification number. And that those are two completely separate events. So that the creation of the corporation itself with no federal identification number would be, according to the regulations, a foreign uh, corporation, something that is a state corporation. And the regulations seem to infer that that would be foreign to the federal government. But then once you make an election to make it a domestic um uh, concern by getting an EIN, uh, then of course now it's there. Now I, I tend to agree with you. I, my personal opinion is that, man, if you go to these people and you pay them money and they, and you create a corporation based on their authority, then that corporation exists within the federal construct and that, um, uh, it would, it would be very difficult because a corporation is in, and this is kind of splitting hairs. A corporation is really created by the authority of the state. How can you have a, a a true corporation created by the authority of a state that's not really functioning right now? Before you can have LLCs and and you know big corporations, you'd actually need the hundred and twenty some odd people who could fill the basic um, positions of that government to actually be operating, that, that there would need to be an operational government for that to legitimately exist. The part that can legitimately exist today, in my opinion, and this might be overly cautious, 
is that uh, you can be a sole proprietor. I was just going to go with why, why even, of course, the LLC is a limited liability corporation, and it's a shield that allows people to, um, you know, a lot of people start their companies in Delaware because Delaware is friendly uh, with regards to LLCs. And it gives you a shield from your, technically from the ends logist entity, that's, that's also known as the birth record, because that's the entity that's making the application in the federal zone. In my view, right, um, right. and it, it keeps that the ends logist entity, the birth record, for, uh, it gets a, the LLC provides a shield for liability. So, you know, if if you give somebody a bad product and they sue you, they can't go after your quote personal stuff. Is the concept, as I understand it, for LLC, and begs the question, you know, if you're if if you're flying a flag uh, of of your business underneath the several state moniker you know within that zone as an article four citizen um do you really need a corporation to do that well no you don't yeah but but what you need um one is you can control yourself so if you are uh, and this is just me deducing the uh, uh the strategy based on the government takes a very wide um approach to its own power and uh, a corporation is a display of power of a political authority. And you just can't really publicly display the power of a political authority without that political authority actually functioning. So that's why I think it's impossible to have a legitimate corporation from an Article Four state at the moment even though it might legally be um, a legitimate corporation. And the alternative is you're making widgets, you want to sell widgets, you're doing it outside of the uh, federal zone as a non-resident alien, and you're deriving your income from a non-domestic um, uh, or non-DC domiciled business. And let's say those widgets are uh, tomato uh, garden steaks. You're whittling them up in yeah. the back of your house, right? Right, right. And you're selling them. Now the next question becomes, hey, I just took a Federal Reserve note as compensation for this uh, st- uh, tomato plant steak I just sold. And and yes, on, on the last episode with, with our guest, I don't think you guys covered this, but does exchanging an FRNs bring it back into the federal nexus? Well, there, there's certainly a, um, an argument for that, and that's another display of the reason why there's only Federal Reserve notes in play is because the states under Article 4, they aren't actually functioning. I mean, they're, that's how far gone it's gone. They're not functioning because if they were functioning, there would be gold and silver in, in, uh, uh, in, you know, in circulation because that's how those states are required to pay their bills. So um, the the possibility is that you know with a Federal Reserve note, when you go to transfer that, you buy something with that Federal Reserve note. <coughs> the owner of that note is the Federal Reserve Bank, right? They're the the the, the Federal Reserve Board. They control that note. So that creates a problem when you go to buy something with it. This is pure conjecture but one of the ideas would be that you know these gold exchange companies that you can buy gold using frns you could use them as a buffer that you buy gold for benefit of somebody else and um if you were a a real um 
Article 4 business making widgets in the back and you wanted to get paid in gold and silver coin, you can make that happen. But uh, I, I think it's worth the risk, in my opinion, to accept Federal Reserve notes. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're going to do that, then spend them as quick as you can. <laughs> well, we got a, uh, a... Convert them into something that's... Yeah, exactly. So. Convert them into a different asset. Uh, that's right. a good... I like that. That's, you know, something else that... Uh, stores value and there's lots of things from uh lead to uh precious metals uh as you we we had a comment and and we're we're not as good about up uh responding to our comments at our site as we should be Corey. but uh k-m-c-r-o-b-e-r i always love it when people use some kind of acronym they don't just say who they are but as you acknowledge the lack of case law supporting this reading of bruce Saber. Why did you delete the earlier comment pointing out that your interpretation has explicitly failed in court? Now, let's just back up a second. I don't recall deleting any comment. Do you, Corey? I, well, uh, yes, I deleted a comment from... Uh, uh, we didn't even want to say his name anymore. It's kind right. of a... Remember who that was? Yeah, yeah, okay. Right. So I deleted a, that comment. That's the only one that I deleted, so... Okay. Um, this if if he's if this person is referring to that comment and saying why did you delete the earlier comment pointing out that your interpretation has explicitly failed in court that doesn't uh, that doesn't reference anything because that comment was five hundred words long it had a whole oh, bunch of stuff that there it was is. ridiculous ad hominem attacks so I deleted it but. Yeah. Okay, I've got you. I see it now. Yeah, this this is from that guy that um, is writing the book that wants to try and quote us, and, oh, yeah. we're, and we're not. That's gonna, right. Um, I mean, if you if you actually listen to what you and our guest uh, said, I mean, you're up front. Sixteenth Amendment's legit. I mean, there's two volumes right. by Bill Benson right. called the Amendment that never was. He spent his whole life trying to prove that it was not legit. There's lots of efforts out there to prove the Sixteenth Amendment was not legitimately done. Um. But that lens that I think that Bill Benson and others went through um, was a lens uh, uh, regarding the several states. They're still of the mindset that they had standing as U.S. citizens inside the several states, and what was done uh, was done fraudulently um, with this, you know, with the Sixteenth Amendment and the IRS. But what they're, I think, that the Bill Bensons of the world failed to recognize is that inside D.C., they can be as insane as they want. Right. They, right. You know, it, and- it, it, they don't need the 16th amendment if you are a if you are considered federal personnel and and the relationship that you end up engaging with or or becoming a part of when you have these types of obligations with the government is the 16th amendment just doesn't matter because they could tax you before the 16th amendment in the same way they're taxing you today that the 16th amendment was I don't know. In my mind, it was kind of like a uh, trick play in football. You know, yeah. trick plays. You hear the other side. You've seen trick plays before where sure. they just clown another team. Um, to me, that it just seems like the 16th Amendment was a trick play. It was just clowning everybody. But what, what I'm going with this is, you know, you, you and, and the, the guests over and over said, if you have an obligation to the IRS, pay it. So you never said, right. you know, you, we're going to show you how to get away with something. And in fact, at the end of it, you guys talked about um, the quote from, I think it was Justice Brandeis, about that, you know, there's, there's tax uh, avoidance and there's tax, what was the term he used? Um, 
Um, tax evasion. Eva- yeah, if you if you take the toll road and don't pay it, that's tax evasion. Right. And if you opt not to take the toll road, then there's nothing to pay. Then that's just tax avoidance. And this concept exactly. of avoiding a tax is you know is it's been it's been converted into a pejorative you know circumstance like oh he's avoiding taxes he must be a you know <laughs> rebel or he's a conspiracy theorist or whatever you know so that's i think where this this is heading in terms of this this guy's uh and and, and this this effort I, I didn't see this quote i guess it's similar to what uh or this comment similar to the, the, the screed that was emailed to both of us and i only read the first two sentences and, and just anyway uh, it's like if we're so wrong then why do you care Right. You well, know, here, here's the other I, thing. I mean, Let's look at the way this is worded, because <laughs> this is the... Um, I'm, I'm kind of assuming that KMC Robber yeah. uh, has, has some association with uh, the legal profession. Yes. So, if we look at what he's writing, okay, th- this is the difference between, you know, somebody who is intentionally trying to... Uh, um, uh, not engage or or come to a common ground, but he said your interpretation ex- is explicitly failed in court. I don't know exactly what he's referring to, but he says people who have asserted the non-resident alien theory in court, relying on Brushaber, have failed, and courts have explicitly held that that case has nothing to do with citizenship or residency status. So he's right. The Bruce Schaber case had nothing to do with citizenship or residency status. The reason is it had everything to do with the source of where that money came from. And when the money comes from a U.S. source, it doesn't matter what your citizenship or residency status is. If it's U.S. sourced income, then they have authority to tax over it. So in in the way he's worded this, he's... He can argue this way that, oh, yeah, it had nothing to do with citizenship or residency status. But the entire case was argued about citizenship and residency status because Bruce Haber was saying, look, I don't owe this tax because this is the type of citizen I am. This is the type of corporation the money's coming from. The federal government has no uh, jurisdiction to come and tax me for this. His entire argument was based on who he was. And that argument was legitimate if the federal government had come into a state, you know, between uh, Bruce Schaber and, say, an investment that he might have made in a local water company. Let's say he makes an investment in a, a, or a local electric company. There, there was different competing electric companies. There, there's lots of different local companies at the time because things were so much different than they are today. If the federal government came in and taxed him on that and he used those same arguments, he probably would have won. But that, that's where I get at this whole thing about the way things are done, these, these little ways of arguing that attorneys do is very frustrating. And to me, it, it, it's very clear why early Americans distrusted attorneys so much. I mean, they, they tried to write everything up to where I don't have to use an attorney. Right Today, we always think you have to use an attorney, but part of the framework of the country was taking attorneys out of the equation. You could still use them if you wanted to, but they're taking them out of the equation because they are so dangerous. Um, anyway, th- this whole thing has nothing to do with citizenship or residency status. So 
what I would like to know is from the commenter here, it says, people who have asserted the non-resident alien theory in court. Show me a case where people have asserted the non-resident alien theory in court. They don't have U.S. sourced income, and they don't have a social security number. Show me one of those, and you know, uh, and, and it's a loss, and maybe I'll start to listen. But in every case, all of these cases that have ever been presented to me that say, oh, no, look, this doesn't work, um, you know, X, Y, Z, even in my own case with traffic, you remember those attorneys went through six different attorneys and they would show me cases on why I'm wrong. And I would explain to them, well, yeah, that doesn't apply, right? That case is not the same as mine. Um, the, uh, uh, the the whole thing that they cannot ever show is a scenario where the government is is stepped out of its bounds, right? Every time there's people that either have a social security number, and once you have a social security number, it doesn't matter where your income comes from. You it, it could come from Mexico, it could come from Borneo, and you owe tax on that. So on the on the deleted comment, which I'm going to read a portion of it because I think it's has merit to to argue. In fact, anyone born in any one of the states is a U.S. citizen under the 14th Amendment unless they're a child of a foreign minister. That's clear from Wong Kim Ark, another case that JP seemed to forget about when its language was inconvenient to the conspiracy theory. There's no super-secret multi-level bi-phase state citizenship system. There's just U.S. citizenship and state citizenship, and you can't be a state citizen unless you're a U.S. citizen. Okay, so there is a case that explains why attorneys are um, disingenuous. Cannot be trusted, right? They're just disingenuous because the case that that has been presented so many times that says you can't be a, a state citizen without being a U.S. citizen. If you look at that case, the unless I'm wrong, I'm happy to have somebody bring a different case. I would love to see it because it would refine the argument, but the cases that I've seen are people who have social security numbers, they have driver's licenses, they have everything, and then they go in and say, well, I'm a, a, um, a citizen of the state of California, and they don't delineate anything else. They don't do anything like what our guest said. You have to do something. There has to be something concrete to show that you know you have divorced yourself from federal uh, jurisdiction. And if you go in and argue that you are a citizen of one of the administrative divisions of the federal government, you can't do that without first saying that you are a citizen of the federal government. Mm -hmm. And and so they rely on a case like that where it looks like, oh, okay, all right, the court said you have to be a U.S. citizen to be a state citizen. Well, <laughs> it's, yes, in in that particular case, that would work. And as far as um, education, because in there he talks about how we have a complete lack of education. We don't ever look to any real resources. Uh, at least I think that's the comment. I've mm -hmm. gotten so much right. from him. It's pretty frustrating. Right. Um, one of the, uh, oh, let's see. What did I do with it? Oh, man. Well, I didn't one of the things that's fascinating restarted. to me on this is uh, if you go to, to Faith Pennington and just her situation. She, right. You know, she was well. That that's where our good friend Colin kind of reverses himself because I brought up in a uh, discussion with him. I don't know if you were a party to that, but I brought up the Faith Pennington thing. So I interrupted you, but go no, ahead. No, please go ahead. All right. Well, well, I 
I was explaining to him that, you know, her position would be perfect to argue as a Article 4 citizen. And, <coughs> excuse me, um, if anybody born in one of the 50 states is automatically a U.S. citizen, why did she have so much trouble? Exactly. Right? Exactly. Why, Thank why you. did she have so much trouble getting all this stuff? His response was, well, she just had to prove it. No, no, she didn't have to prove it. She, she had to volunteer she, in. Right. She had to beg for it. She had to beg for it. She had to get her grandparents. She didn't prove anything. She was. She right. established new status, is what she did. Exactly. And she didn't prove one thing. She she opted into new status. And and there is a nuance here that is difficult for people to remember, and that is, it's much like the the uh, the example of I have a degree in English, but I am not an English degree. I can right. be a one of the citizens of the several states under article 4 section 2 but i'm and, and i can possess us citizenship as a member of that union but i am not a us citizen that is a plausible logical position to take if you can prove it you do have to prove that because if you've already opted in you have to extract yourself out of that nexus right and that that is the one that's the one thing that has not been done in U.S. history without leaving the entire nation. Plenty of people have rescinded their U.S. citizenship, but they have to do that from outside the country. Mm -hmm. there, yeah. There's yeah. not a, an example of somebody who is fully in the plantation, social security number, um, driver's license, everything, and then revert back to the status equal to that of Faith Pennington. And... Uh, I guess I, I, I'm I'm struggling with, you know, the, I, on one sense, the fact that there's such an effort being made by this individual to critique us means what we say, quote unquote, matters, supposedly. I, I think it's just distraction, but hey, we, we can handle it. Uh, but additionally, you know, what what is what is your solution, guy? What do you got? What, oh, what's well, what's your solution is keep paying attorneys because he's got a pool payment to make. I guess. I don't get it. Anyway. Uh, I, I would think that the last time, and, and you know, I'm inclined to go ahead and, you know, I don't know, let this post ride. I don't care if you took the time to put it on there. All right. That's yeah, fine. I'll, I'll do that. And, uh, there I, I it just is. thought it was so disingenuous that, well, uh, now that we've discussed it, you know, put it yeah, in context, it's, it's out right. there. There it is. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, some people are asking for your phone number. We didn't publish that. And. Um, you know, you, you get a lot of people saying, I need help to get out of the system. And they, they just, they don't, they haven't done any effort. They haven't made any, made any effort yet to. Yeah. <laughs> hey, by the way, I need help too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. We could all it's, use some help. It's the, the whole thing. We know what the, the battle plan is. The, the battle plan is, uh, personally, the battle plan is to delete all obligations associated with social security and, the driver's license. With the show from you know 129 and 130, what our guest showed is that has nothing to do with U.S. sourced income. So if you get rid of your social security number, and it also shows how disingenuous that letter was from social security, because mm -hmm. they said they have to keep track of income in the United States. All right. I don't need a social security number for you to keep track of income in the United States. Because if I work for somebody who is a U.S. employer, and I don't have a social security number, then they have to keep track of that income that they pay me 
And then the employer withholds all of the tax. There's no paperwork on my end. The employer withholds all of the tax, and the employer is responsible for sending that off because they are a U.S. employer. So they are still keeping track of all income in the United States. Absolutely. They're, They're just, it's so disingenuous. It's so clear that what they want is they want to be able to put me in a status or keep me in a status that makes everything taxable to the United States, even income that would not otherwise be taxable. And they would be able to do that in the form of an excise by saying, oh, look, you get to wear this jacket called U.S. citizenship. Yeah, it's, uh, I think we've, you know, we state our positions clearly and, and yeah. it's a matter of actual affecting them is the, is the biggest challenge is, is finding the time and resources to, to pursue them. And, uh, I think it's a healthy, as you, as you guys talked about in the last episode, you know, real tax reform begins right in your living room, having these discussions. Uh, and, and why are we concerned about those taxes going to that federal Leviathan? And we've gone over this ad nauseum because it is a Leviathan that is completely out of control. And right. it is only growing bigger and only getting more oppressive. And it just, you know, at this point, it, it may not impact you on a daily basis, but it's impacting a lot of people. A lot of people are suffering because of uh, that Leviathan. Uh, so uh, great work. Uh, thank you, uh, JP, for uh, your efforts on that. And uh, that's available episode 130 and 129. This just in, Corey. I don't know if you heard about this yet, but uh, I like that. <laughs> one of our uh, listeners sent us a link to the Daily Caller, which is sorting, uh, citing the New York Times as their source. That in a power move, new Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch opts out of high court labor pool. Did you see this? I did not. Yeah, um, putting this in the uh, um, in the chat room there. All right. And uh, in an early show of independence, Justice Neil Gorsuch declined to join the Supreme Court's, quote, cert pool, meaning I think certification pool, an administrative division of labor that allows for efficient review of the deluge of petitions the justices receive each term. Adam Liptock of the New York Times first reported the news late Monday, citing the court's public information office. The cert poll was established in 1973 during the early years of the Burger Court in order to efficiently review the near 8,000 petitions received each term. In practice, the petitions are apportioned among the court's law clerks, who then circulate a memo to the justices recommending a grant or denial. Therefore, a law clerk's recommendation is sig- significantly affects the outcome of a petition. Of course, Corey, we played your audio file of, of you on the phone with one of these clerks. Yeah. In choosing not to join the pool, Gorsuch is flashing an independent streak. By having his own staff review each petition, he may be signaling misgivings about the judgments of other chambers or of pool memos prepared by clerks who don't share his interpretive commitments. Under the cert pool system, the justices must accept that a significant portion of petitions are reviewed by young clerks who may not share their opinions on a wide range of legal issues. On the other hand, it may simply reflect a preference for the work product of his own clerks, an inclination shared by other federal judges, including Judge Alex Kaczynski uh, of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. He may also feel that opting out of the pool ensures greater scrutiny is given to each petition. 
The decision also suggests Gorsuch might share the concerns of many court watchers and legal scholars who have criticized the pool. Detractors argue it empowers well-credentialed but unseasoned law clerks, privileges certain parties over others, and has resulted in a dramatic decrease in the size of the court's docket. With respect to docket size, critics claim the cert pool incentivizes risk-averse behavior among clerks who fear the pronounced embarrassment that attends recommending a grant for a case which the justices later dismiss as improvidently granted. As a result, they claim the conservative posture of the clerks causes worthy cases to be dismissed, leaving important controversies unresolved. One such critic is Professor Douglas Berman of the Ohio State University Moritz Mortiz College of Law. Berman, a former Second Circuit law clerk who writes extensively on sentencing, adds that the cert pool may inhibit the justices from thoroughly reviewing the rulings of the lower courts, resulting in lengthy, disjointed, and confusing opinions. Pardon me. Notably, the growth of the cert pool has not only paralleled the shrinking of the docket, but also the proliferation of long, fractured opinions, he wrote in 2007. Perhaps if the justices spent more time personally reading cert petitions and lower court rulings and not just summaries from one clerk in the pool, they might directly discover areas of the law in need of extra attention and also might better appreciate the mess they sometimes make by issuing fractured rulings, end quote. Seven of the nine justices currently participate in the cert poll. Justice Samuel Alito opted out of the system in 2008. Gorsuch has not yet commented publicly on his decision. So that was just a new little thing I'd never known about, Corey. Well, I didn't know about that either. That's yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, it's pretty obvious the way this is written that the cert poll could easily, if you have all the Supreme Court relying on a cert poll, the people who are running that cert pool are incredibly powerful. Yeah. Oh, big time. I mean, it's ridiculous the amount of power they have. They could, they, and subject to who? Right. <laughs> like, and where do you go? Yeah. Uh, it's, it is pretty amazing. Thank you, Brian, for sending that. Uh, appreciate yeah, that very much. Awesome. It's a good little note. Uh, and uh, what else did I have here? Um, you want to talk about the uh, gas tax? Yeah. In California, the California gas tax. Yeah, you, you've heard of this, right? You've heard of the. Oh, gas we've tax talked about it many times on this show. Oh. You've, 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 uh, you have pontificated many times, Corey, about how much of a ruse the gas tax is. And I've ironically heard uh, John Dvorak, who lives in California, just the other day on one of his No Agenda shows, uh, just laud how much of a facade and and just sham the gas tax is. So I mean, it, it's, it's just a, it's not like you're alone in your thinking out there in California. What I feel like I'm alone in is the solution here in California because mm -hmm. it's so obvious. One of the I didn't I didn't bookmark it, but one of the um, uh, one of the articles from the Sacramento Bee said that the requirements to uh, to spend the money that they're now in this new tax to make sure that that money is spent on actual roads and not stolen for some other purpose has been enshrined in the California constitution. They use the word enshrined, right? Um, totally promoting how great this gas tax is going to be. It's a, it works out to be about 5.2 billion per year in new taxes. It's a, an average of $157 per person if there's 33 million people in California. Wow. But the, ga the gas tax doesn't really work that way. The, the gas tax, it, it's going to work based on people who are buying gas. Like if you buy more gas, you're going to pay more tax. 
with the theory being, well, you use the roads more, so it's a fair tax because, you know, you're using the roads more than somebody who isn't buying gas, right? Makes sense, right? Sure. But the gas taxes that are already being charged, those are taxes that are based on the idea that, well, if you use the roads more, then you should pay more tax. But what, what's happening is those taxes are no longer being used for the roads. They're being used for other stuff. So it works out that people who are using the roads more have to pay for other stuff more. Because oh. even though things that are enshrined in this constitution, the 1879 constitution, as they use the term enshrined, it's a bullshit constitution. It's not what you think it is. When I say bullshit, I mean it's from – most people think of like, oh, it's a, uh, one of the states. You know, it's, it's one of the states admitted into the union. It's the constitution for the state. Well, in California, unless you can show me the paperwork, unless you can show me the legislative history repealing or replacing the original 1849 Constitution, then this one's BS. You know, it, it's, not, it's not real in that framework. The problem is it is real in the administrative division of the federal government. That, it's real. But in the administrative division of the federal government, those administrators... It's kind of like the house rules and they own the house. Well, they, they make the rules. They change it. And that's what they've done. The previous gas taxes were absolutely guaranteed to make sure that that money would be spent on the roads and couldn't be spent anywhere else. That was at the time when they were getting people to approve this tax using that logic. Well, if you drive more, you need to pay more. We got to fix our roads, everything else. And California, for a time, had the most amazing infrastructure. Uh, you know, back in the um, from '60s on through about the early '80s, California was putting in awesome infrastructure projects that many of them were were well funded through these gas taxes. Like it was working. <clears throat> the problem was. Some of this infrastructure was built so well that it's very easy to defer maintenance on it, and nobody will notice for a decade or more. And that's about what happened with the old gas taxes. Instead of that money going to roads that is constitutionally required for it to go to roads, they're able to divert the funds somewhere else simply by changing what the um, taxes will be. So they have all the Sacramento Bee has all these proposals. They have information here. I'll put it in the um let me uh chat room yeah i'll put it in the chat room let me copy this link and and the and so, the, the people are might be upset about the tax but it sounds like in california most people maybe are not aware that that it's not going to the roads it being the revenue or, right, or is it well, or is it known it's known there's just such cognitive dissonance kind of mm -hmm. like well okay this time they're not going to do it you know, like there's no discussion, even from Travis Allen. He's a Republican from Huntington Beach. I don't think he's an attorney, but he might be. Um, he just filed for a shot at repealing the gas tax. But to me, this is all kabuki theater. It, it just, it, he talks about in his proposal of where he's going to get the money to be able to pay for, uh, you know, if you repeal this tax, how are we going to fix the roads? Why not take the money that's already being used from, you know, taxation of gas and put that towards the roads? What what happened was, oh, let me, did I get this in the chat room? Yeah. Okay. So there's the uh, California tax gas increase. 
the um, the the coalition that opposes the uh, Travis Allen. These are all California state um, legislatures. The, the, they're all vampires there in California. The, the organization that opposes them is called Fix Our Roads. I'm going to put their website in there. And take a look at the seven principles. If you go into the chat room, you click on it, it'll say the seven principles to fix California roads. It's just such crap. This is well-funded nuts but just look at it. one it says make a significant investment in transportation infrastructure well th- that doesn't you know they're gonna to them and you can find this over and over again a significant investment in transportation infrastructure includes making it where you can't drive right that those are things that they that seem to be just fantastic stuff they want to do what do you mean so there's all these proposals for different areas where cars will be banned and they have traffic calming places. They have uh, all these different areas where in some places it's good. I totally agree with it that, you know, it might be better for downtown LA to not have cars. I, I could definitely see that a possibility. But if they have the power to tell you that, hey, we're going to tell you you can't have cars in this area. And they're already doing things where it makes it, you know, two classes of citizen. One class works for the government, one class doesn't. With the toll roads out here in California, they use the gas taxes to help build toll roads through incredibly corrupt means. I mean, if you investigate the toll roads here in California, it's just insane what is going on and how people just are asleep all around it. Well, the the challenge I have with the statement, though, is that make a significant investment in transportation infrastructure does not on its face denote that they're making it more difficult to drive. That, that, that's no, it just, does that's, not. Yeah. No, it, okay. it does not. But that, that is part of what they do, right? They, mm. That includes um, areas where, like, we have this high-speed train thing here in California. It's a you know, multi-billion dollar boondoggle from, uh, from Governor Brown. It's called a high-speed train, but it's not a high-speed train. Right. It doesn't go fast like a high-speed train. I got gotcha. you. And, and in the original... Um, uh, agreement where they the people voted on these funds to be able to do a bond investment. It said that it had to be spent on a high speed train, but but it's not. They admit that it's not a high speed train, and they just say, well, for this areas, these areas don't count. And now they can make any area of the whole thing not count as a high speed requirement area, and then still call it a high speed train. Well, meanwhile, none of those funds are being put into fixing the roads, the bridges. I mean, it's a, the roads in California are an absolute mess. Number two, they talk about focus on maintaining and rehabilitating the current system. Uh, right? I, I don't think they're talking about um, uh, the road system there. I think they're talking about the system of graft that all of these people have taking out of government. Invest a portion of diesel tax and or cap-and-trade revenue to high-priority goods movement projects. That's, you know, what they, that's to me a thing of uh, high-speed rail. Number four is really interesting. Raise revenues across a broad range of options. How many other places can we tax you? That's, that's what that's saying. Equal split between state and local governments. Um, strong accountability requirements to protect the taxpayer's investment. That's the part that I think is really interesting. And then number seven, provide consistent annual funding levels. To what? (laughs) They're already getting consistent annual funding levels. They're already getting billions of dollars that they're not spending on the roads that was supposed to be spent on the roads. Now, number six, let's take a look at how they do that. 
it says, um, okay, so let me go to put this in the chat room right now. Um, this is a really interesting breakdown to where is your money going. This was on uh, Fox 40 in Sacramento. And they kind of break down what what California did. And this is a, a lady, Patty Gibson. She drives an electric car. And she says, oh, great. For an extra 100 bucks to fix the state's roads, oh, sure. I haven't bought gas for three years. I'm happy with this new gas tax because it'll cost you know me 100 bucks. I'm happy to help pay for the roads. That's how they get you. <laughs> it's is starting off like no big deal. That's how it's happened through all the different taxes that we have. Um, and let me go a little bit farther down here where... Um, oh, let's see. They talk. Oh, here's where... Okay, so they talk about the money California... This is a direct quote from this that I just put up. The money California... <coughs> sorry about... <coughs> Whoa, sorry about that. Grab a drink of water real quick. So uh, Fox 40, I'm pulling it up right now. Gas tax, where's your money going? And if you scroll down to about the fourth paragraph, it starts off saying the money California collects already does pay for highway maintenance, but also for California Highway Patrol and other general fund expenditures. That's the key thing. Other general fund expenditures. It pays for those things, even though there is a law that existing gas sales tax could only be spent on transportation, and that tax can't be raised without a two-thirds majority vote. So this explains how they did it. But that's where things get a little tricky. See, back in 2010, when the Great Recession was about at its worst, California lawmakers actually voted to lower the sales tax on gas. But at the same time, they voted to increase the excise tax. There was no net. It was not a net increase on taxes, but it allowed them to spend the money on anything they wanted. There's the difference. Yeah. They lower the sales tax, but then at the same time increase the excise tax. And now the excise tax, which they can do without a vote, they can just simply say, here we go. This is what we're doing. But because it's an excise tax, they can spend the money on anything they want. And they didn't didn't spend it on roads. What they did was they got you to agree and get used to paying this sales tax and paying how much your gas is, and it's supposed to go to the roads. Then they just simply change the name of the tax and say, well, you've got to help pay for the roads, so we need a new one of these. That they can do the same thing over again. Totally. They can just r pull the football. Right out from under you. Yeah. So this is something that... You know, you talk about a uh, uh, target-rich environment. If you're an Article 4 citizen and you're going up and you're paying all these different taxes on gas, I, I, I get it that this would fall apart. You have to actually own a refinery or own a gas station, something like that, for this to actually have standing. But the difference is, if you're a U.S. citizen, you have no standing to say, hey, you know, Mr. Supreme Court, this is unconstitutional. An Article 4 citizen theoretically could have standing to say, no, I don't have to collect these taxes for this division. If you're a true Article 4 state government um, division, like, mm -hmm. like uh, or corporation, sorry. Um, anyway, that, it, it's just so obvious that the government is screwing us. Like, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing with the money. 
and well, the citizens are, are just sleep to it. The citizens are are just the piggy bank of of the government. I mean, you're there to serve them. It's not the other way around, and it's just very apparent. And it's it's in our face every day. Um, and uh, hopefully, more and more people can pay attention to this. I don't. Not, are they this new thing that's being proposed, Corey? Is it the excise that gives them the wiggle room on how to spend it, or is it a quote? gas tax that has to go towards roads um the the they're saying right now that it has to go to the roads okay right that 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 this money can only be spent on fixing the roads um that's what they're saying right now but the remember that's what they said to get all these other taxes in place right and all these other taxes that have been spent on the roads they've been eroded away to where, yeah, the money that's collected, the the lower amounts, the, they're collecting less tax now on the 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 tax that's required to fix the roads, and they've replaced that difference. Like, let's say they're taxing a total of fifty cents a gallon in in gas tax. Originally, all fifty cents of that was required to go to the roads. Of course, they're going to have ridiculous administrative fees, stuff like that. But that's not good enough for them. So what they did was they reduced the voter approved tax the amount that the voters approved and then they come in and replace that with an excise tax that they don't need voter approval on and now that money can be spent any way they want and it's not a conspiracy theory it's absolute fact it's what they've done and it's to get you used to you're paying you know three dollars a gallon for gas or four dollars a gallon for gas that price you pay per gallon doesn't change and and it what do, you, what do you mean the price Did doesn't change? It, no, it's it's we're having a connection oh, issue. It. I don't know what the hell the problem is. Sorry. Well, if there's if there was fifty cents in gas tax and you're paying three dollars and fifty cents a gallon, mm-hmm. and they change that gas tax to where now you're only paying ten cents in gas tax and forty cents in excise tax. I got gotcha. you. You're still paying three fifty a gallon. I'm with you. Right? So the Sacramento Bee is stating that the the proposal is to go up twelve cents a gallon. Is this in a, over and above everything else that you've already been talking about? Yeah, this is a brand new twelve cents a gallon that's supposed to go to fixing the roads. Got it. They can do the exact same thing again, even though all those stuff is in place. It's all enshrined in the Constitution and everything. Right. All they have to do is get people used to paying that twelve cents. Wait a couple of years. Let the whole population get inoculated with it. Get used to paying three dollars and sixty two cents a gallon. And then they'll take that twelve cents and reduce it to say t- two cents per gallon, and then replace that ten cent loss with another excise tax that they can spend on anything they want. I got you. It, it, now it's making sense the the methodology, the the way they roll it out. And you know. yeah, you'll see within ten years that all this new, you know, constitutionally protected tax. There, there will be money that will go into the roads. I have no doubt you'll see an immediate begin go to work on the roads. But the thing is, that work should have never stopped. That 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 should have never stopped. But because the system that we have now, this administrative system where everybody has volunteered into it, you're letting these people run and do things that are, you know, they, they're allowed to do it because that that whole side of government was never supposed to have citizens of its own. <clears throat> oh, now I really see what's going on here. 
this this article goes at the second one of B talks about uh, uh, let's see other money will come from paying off past transportation loans Caltrans savings if that's the pension plan that they have I don't I don't yeah know, I don't know how you have savings on something that's supposed to be earning money but and new charges on diesel fuel and zero emission vehicles and I had to laugh we were traveling back uh, from Florida and stopped at the uh, uh, Oasis or you know rest stop if you will that's that's state owned DOT owned and and you pull up to the area where the restaurants are and stuff and there's this sign that says this spot reserved for uh, uh, zero emission vehicles <laughs> so they have special parking now, you know, right up close to the to the oh, door. Yeah. And yeah. I just we parked and turned the car off, and I go, well, when the car's off, it's emitting no, uh, there's no emissions, so we're zero emission vehicle. <laughs> we can do a homograph too, no problem. There you go, no problem. So, um, all right, I want to play this uh, just for the heck of it. You, you know who Kurt Nemo is. Uh, Kurt Nemo, he, he's, he's on InfoWars with Alex Jones. He's got his own oh, yeah, kind of okay. thing going. He, I ran across one of his uh, YouTube videos. It's about a 15-minute long video. It's really well done, but this is a short clip uh, compared to the 15 minutes about uh, popular culture. And I just thought that his uh, comments were worth uh, hearing again. Because their message represents a threat to cultural... Mo- he's talking about, at the beginning of this, I jumped right in the middle, he's talking about rappers who don't get uh, music deals and get uh, proliferated through the, the current music system that are talking about uh, uh, high moral values. You know, trying to, instead of talking, you know, uh, smack and about, you know, being misogynistic and doing drugs and, you know, being violent and so forth, like a lot of gangster rap does, the rappers who try and talk about wholesome things and, 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 and instill, you know, self-determination in youth through their lyrics don't get advanced. And that's, what, that's where he's going off on this. A threat to the toxic identity that the music industry force-feeds young people. Look at youth counterculture. In the past, youth culture was spearheaded by students. They created the counterculture, which then trickled down into pop culture. What are students busying themselves with today? Safe spaces, political correctness, virtue signalling, and gender studies. When did being cool become about parroting everyone else's opinions? They are socially conscious citizens and are provoked by the loathsome presence of an unmutual. They are sheep. When did being hip become about writing laborious Facebook posts about how progressive you are? As Theodore Dalrymple noted, the pressure to conform to canons of popular taste, or rather lack of taste, has never been stronger. Everyone's petrified of constant social media surveillance by their peers. Reactionary! Rebel! Disharmonious! Rebel! Reactionary! And we force ourselves to swallow this rotten culture just so we can feel an affinity with our peers, so we can fit in. That's why there's no discernible youth counterculture. It's all predicated on conformity. You must conform. Yes, sir. It is my sworn duty to see that you do conform. And kids today are so satiated with the deluge of entertainment on offer that they have no time or interest in rebelling against the received culture. No time to create their own look. No inclination to form their own ideas about the world, when it's so much easier to just regurgitate what Russell Brand or Meryl Streep is saying. Whether it be fashion, art, music, literature, comedy, culture has been completely sanitized 
There is no counterculture. And that's why, with very few exceptions, everyone looks the same. Same head. Sadly, uh, I think he is accurate on the on a lot of fronts, especially with our you know, youth. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, you know, be accepted by their peers. You know, go along, get along. Uh, just repeat what you've heard. And, and if you... If you run across a millennial that you can have a cogent dialogue with, uh, which I have recently, and uh, it was quite uh, illuminating, and, and, and it was actually very healthy, because at the end of our, our, our heated debate, uh, this individual said to me, you know, that was fun. We should do that again. So yeah. there is hope out there in terms of that, that young culture. I think that just, they're, not, they're not challenged very often. They're not challenged about where they're, what, they just, what just came out of their mouth, where it came from, and why they believe that and, and backing it up. And, um, I have a quick question, though. The, the audio from that, that sounded more like Paul Joseph Watson. What, oh, I might have got it mixed up, man. I think you're right. I apologize. Thank you. Goodness. How lame okay. of me. Yes, it is Paul Joseph Watson. It's not Kurt Nemo. I just got an inbound from somebody mentioning Nemo, who's also an InfoWars guy, I believe. And so I, I apologize. That was, in all fairness, a Paul Joseph Watson <laughs> clip. Yes. <laughs> he has a very distinct cool. voice. You're absolutely right. My apologies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like I like Paul Watson. I, I, I think... Uh, I like his point of view. I like the way he breaks things down. I think he would be, if he took the time, I think he would be a big proponent of Article 4 citizenship. Yeah, he does some good work. Um, yeah, what, what I was d- dialoguing with this millennial about was uh, I made a comment that how uh, unsettling to me it was that free speech is getting uh, squelched on campuses, on college campuses with regards to uh, conservative speakers. And I made the comment that all it takes is a handful of of paid dissenters, uh, provocateurs, to go trash a Starbucks and you know create some property damage and have injury and harm, and then you've got this excuse that you know you can't have speech. And 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 this young person went off on me about how dare you say that people are paid to to protest? That that I, I see people protesting all the time in Chicago and. They're young family members, and they're sincere in their beliefs and their concerns. And you're just you're just marginalizing all the the legitimacy of everybody out there that's working hard to resist all these you know tyrannical things. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. You're telling me you think that there's nobody paid to do these protests? That there's that the, the, the concept that there would be some people who are paid by a third party to go there and stir up shit is not accurate. And and he finally went well. You're talking about a very rare, isolated, you know, handful of people. And I said, that's all it takes. Right. That's all yeah. it takes is a very rare handful of isolated people to create the the, the shitstorm that we have, you know. And uh, and then that got his attention. He's like, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. So anyway, I think Paul Joseph Watson's uh, comments were, were well-founded. Absolutely. And he has yeah. 900,000 subscribers on YouTube. So maybe we should figure out a way to him to do something about Jenna 31. <laughs> I like it. That'd be a good idea. Um, I'm trying to think what else we should discuss. I, uh, I teased a, a Charles Lindbergh uh, uh, speech in my, in, in our, in our outbound email to alert our subscribers about the, uh, today's show. I don't know if you want to check that out or not. It was a speech he made in Des Moines, Iowa, which is yeah. part, part of what caught my, Charles Lindbergh, part of what caught my attention. And uh, this was in uh, on September 11th 
of all things, of 1941. Now, let's recall what else happened in 1941. World War II, right? Yeah, and Pearl Harbor. Ah. A couple and a so half. So I'm, I'm looking for that email. I didn't get one. Which one? About You said there was a promo email that went out. Uh, it came from Publisher, is the uh, from. Right. Yeah, it may have gone to your spam. That's what I'm looking at. Everything Publisher right now. Yeah. This is a speech he made in uh, September 11, 1941 in Des Moines uh, at, with the America First Committee. Um, so let's just check this out. I, I think it, 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 the, the, the assertions he's making now are not going to be new to those that listen to Agenda 31 and especially to those that listen to No Agenda Show with regards to the deep state and propaganda. But I think it's worth hearing what this, you know, there's so much history we don't know that we're not taught, Corey. You know, we're, oh, right. I, all we were taught about Lindbergh in school was that he was a famous pilot. We didn't get any of the backstory on how he was a dissenter of the war and so forth. And, um, you know, he lived over in, in uh, England and, and studied the German Air Force and all this different stuff. But let's just check out what he has to say here. We cannot allow the natural passions and prejudices of other peoples to lead our country to destruction. The Roosevelt administration is the third powerful group which has been carrying this country toward war. Its members have used the... Its members have used the war emergency. Its members have used the war emergency to obtain a third presidential term for the first time in American history. There's a uh, point that's lost, I think, on most of us who were schooled in the public disinformation system. You know, Roosevelt got a third term over and above the rules of the, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Corey, the rules of the Constitution based on war powers. Emergency. Yeah, the emergency. Yeah, that's been perpetuated every cycle since by every succeeding president. Right. So I wonder, I guess after that, there was an amendment that was made that limited the terms, I think is what happened. Check that out while this is being uh, played here. All right. Use the war to add unlimited billions to a debt which was already the highest we have ever known. And they have used the war to justify the restriction of congressional power and the assumption of dictatorial procedures on the part of the president and his appointees. Back in this day, this was pretty much sacrilegious to speak like oh, this. Yeah. Of course. You're right. Yeah, the two-term limit, that's the 22nd Amendment. That was in 1947. Yeah. So I'm wondering what, maybe prior to that, there was no limit on terms. So I wonder what he was meaning by, I guess, he, I don't know. We have to look up that War Powers Act or the Emergency Powers to understand what he was referring to. Did, did he just use, I mean, was there? did he skip an election? Is that what they're talking about for a third term? Or was well, he, he, 
I think he didn't, didn't he run for a third term and was elected? Yeah, I believe so. But I'm wondering what this reference to the using the war powers to, to get an unprecedented third term. Maybe you just, you know, you need to keep me on board because we we're in, we're in trouble now. It, I, it might be, I don't know. Yeah. The power of the Roosevelt administration depends upon the maintenance of a wartime emergency. The prestige of the Roosevelt administration depends upon the success of Great Britain, to whom the president attached his political future at a time when most people thought that England and France could easily win the war. The danger of the Roosevelt administration lies in its subterfuge. While its members have promised us peace, they have led us to war, heedless of the platform upon which they were elected. Gee, what does that sound like? (laughs) In selecting these three groups as the major agitators for war... I have included only those whose support is essential to the war party. If any of these groups, the British, the Jewish, or the administration, stops agitating for war, I believe there will be little danger of our involvement. I do not believe that any two of them are powerful enough to carry this country to war without the support of the third. And to these three, as I have said, all other groups are of secondary importance. When hostilities commenced in Europe in 1939, it was realized by these groups that the American people had no intention of entering the war. They knew it would be worse than useless to ask us for a declaration of war at that time. But they believed that this country could be enticed into the war in very much the same way that it was enticed into the last one. They planned first to prepare the United States for foreign war under the guise of American defense. Second, to involve us in the war step by step without our realization. Third, to create a series of incidents which would force us into the actual conflict. These plans were, of course, to be covered and assisted by the full power of their propaganda. Our theaters soon became filled with plays portraying the glory of war. Newsreels lost all semblance of objectivity. Newspapers and magazines began to lose advertising if they carried anti-war articles. A smear campaign was instituted against individuals who opposed intervention. The terms fifth columnist, traitor, Nazi, anti-Semitic were thrown ceaselessly at anyone who dared to suggest that it was not to the best interests of the United States to enter war. Men lost their jobs if they were frankly anti-war. Many others dared no longer speak. Before long, lecture halls that were open to advocates of war 
were closed to speakers who opposed it. A fear campaign was inaugurated. We were told that aviation, which has held the British fleet off the continent of Europe, made America more vulnerable than ever before to invasion. Propaganda was in full swing. There was no difficulty in obtaining billions of dollars for arms under the guise of defending America. Our people stood united on a program for defense. Congress passed appropriation after appropriation for guns and planes and battleships with the approval of the overwhelming majority of our citizens. That a large portion of these appropriations was to be used to build arms, arms for Europe, we did not learn until later. That was another step. To use a specific example, in 1939, we were told that we should increase our Air Corps to a total of 5,000 planes. Congress passed the necessary legislation. A few months later, the administration told us that the United States should have at least 50,000 planes for our national safety. But almost as soon, almost as fast as fighting planes were turned out from our factories, they were sent abroad. Although our own Air Corps was in the utmost need of new equipment. So that today, two years after the start of war, the American Army has only a few hundred thoroughly modern bombers and fighters. Less, in fact, than Germany is able to produce in a single month. Ever since its inception, our arms program has been laid out for the purpose of carrying on the war in Europe far more than for the purpose of building an adequate defense for America. Only one thing holds this country from war today. That is the rising opposition of the American people. Our system of democracy... Our system of democracy and representative government is on test today as it has never been before. We are on the verge of a war in which the only victor would be chaos and frustration. We are on the verge of war for which we are, are still unprepared and for which no one has offered a feasible plan of victory. A war which cannot be won without sending our soldiers across an ocean to fight and to force a landing on a hostile coast against armies stronger than our own. We... We are on the verge of war. But it is not yet too late to stay out. It is not yet too late to show that no amount of money or propaganda or patronage can force a free and independent people into war against its will. Some of you may die. 
but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. Sorry about that. Can you hear me, Corey? <clears throat> yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, well, that, that uh, Charles Lindbergh was a pretty fascinating guy. Very fascinating. And uh, there's a lot of information out there. He was considered an anti-Semitic by his critics because he railed against the undue influence of the Jewish lobby to foment war. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great tool. Speaking of undue influence of the Jewish lobby, I happened to be listening to the Scott Horton podcast the other day. We listened to a lot of podcasts in the car when we're driving, and he had a guy on by the name of Grant Smith, who publishes a website called Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. The website is irmep.org. And he interviewed Grant. You'd like this guy, Corey Grant. He's a prolific FOIA filer, Freedom of Information Act request. And what was that website again? Uh, I R. Can you throw it in the chat room? Yeah, I R M E P dot org. I R M E P dot org. I R M E P dot org. There, it's in the chat room. Um, anyway, the uh, this this episode that Horton recorded with him was talking about a recent uh, story that Grant published at his website, which is actually published at antiwar dot com. These guys have two or three different outlets for their efforts. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to antiwar.com, excellent website, uh, you know, very well done. Grant wrote this article uh, saying that the CIA fights disclosure of the secret aid to Israel, legality of aid uncertain amidst public opposition, is the title of the, of the uh, article. And he writes, on March 30th, federal judge Tanya Chutkan found it, quote, neither logical nor plausible for the CIA to claim it had no intelligence budget expenditure data of support to Israel between the years 1990 and 2015. The court then ordered the Department of Justice Legal Counsel to meet and confer about responding to the original Freedom of Information Act request for the data and file a response by April 24th. The original FOIA request sought public disclosure of the secret portion of U.S. taxpayer-funded foreign assistance delivered to Israel. Although Memorandum of Understanding packages, the most recent guaranteeing of $3.8 billion per year over a decade and an additional Israel-bound appropriations passed by Congress are publicly known, secret U.S. intelligence aid is not. On September 11, 2013, journalist Glenn Greenwald revealed that the National Security Agency was pumping electronic intercepts of communications of American citizens to Israel with no legally binding limits on how the data could be used. On August 5, 2015, President Barack Obama quantified the possible dollar value boundaries of intelligence aid during a speech at American University, claiming, quote, due to American military and intelligence assistance, which my administration has provided at unprecedented levels, Israel can defend itself against any conventional danger, end quote. Given historic military aid is publicly known, secret intelligence aid to Israel in 2015 was either an additional $1.9 billion per year or $13.2 billion if the president adjusted for inflation. These are the amounts Obama would have had to provide to meet unprecedented combined levels of military intelligence assistance. The question has grown in importance. The Trump administration has indicated that it will be slashing the U.S. foreign aid budget except for funding to Israel. This may make the percentage of total U.S. aid received by Israel jump from an average of 9% over the last past four years to 20 to 30% or even more of the total foreign aid pie. This worries many within the Israel lobby who wish to obscure how disproportionate it has become. Also, according to statistically significant opinion polling, the majority of Americans overwhelmingly oppose USAID to Israel. And there's all kinds of links in this article. The legality of USAID to Israel is also under scrutiny. 
And February reporter Sam Husseini made Senator Chuck Schumer, an ardent Israel supporter, admit during a national press club briefing that Israel has nuclear weapons. Under the Arms Export Control Act, the U.S. May, US may not provide foreign aid of any type to nuclear weapon states operating outside the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty unless they comply with special procedures. On April 24, 21st, hoping to avoid a public hearing, Justice Department legal counsel Joseph Borson made a second attempt to get Judge Chutka to dismiss the CA aid FOIA lawsuit. Avoiding entirely the topic of whether the CIA is providing intelligence support to Israel, Borson argued that because there are 17 separate intelligence agencies, it was wrong for this judge to assume definitively the CIA had any budget data on Israel. In an attached affidavit, Chief Management Officer of the Director of National Intelligence, Mark Ewing, cautioned that the court forced the CIA to go beyond a GLOMAR response, that is a uh, neither confirming nor denying such information exists, it would reveal too much. If the CIA were to conform confirm or deny that a portion of its individual agency intelligent budget relates to Israel, it would tend to show whether or not the intelligence assistant provided was related to HUMINT, H-U-M-I-N-T, a CIA area of expertise. There's only a couple paragraphs left. If rather than being forced to meet in court on April 24th, the CIA manages to get the judge to throw the FOIA lawsuit out, the pathway it recommends to the information sought is clear. The plaintiff would have to file a FOIA with each of the remaining 16 intelligence agencies, either wait years for responses or sue them within 20 working days, receiving their Glomar response or citations of FOIA exemptions online and withhold information from release, all without ever knowing whether the CIA had responsive data. On judge, uh, so they're not even the, the response isn't whether they even have responsive data or not. It's just it's just subterfuge, as to use the term um, Lindbergh used. Or Judge Chuntkun could order the CIA to release the information in court because it is in the public interest, as she did the Department of Defense in 2015, revealing the DoD knew exact knew as early as 1987 that Israel had a hydrogen bomb program. However, the CIA may not be as accommodating as the Pentagon. It has long resisted public accountability generally and the Freedom of Information Act particularly. In practice, courts have little ability to enforce orders to produce information under FOIA or punish the CIA even when it willfully and egregiously violates the law. When ordered by a judge to produce the so-called torture tapes of detainee interrogations in 05, the agency instead incinerated them. I remember that. The Justice yeah. Department, which rigorously defends the CIA in all FOIA cases, subsequently chose not to charge the agency officials responsible for violating the order. So uh, this is, I mean, I just, rules for us, rules for them. And the end result of these games are more war, more death, more destruction. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the people, if the people who profit from war are in power or have undue influence over power, you're going to have war. Yeah, this... Uh, this guy Grant Smith is is really switched on, and uh, in terms of just, I mean, he's just a prolific FOIA uh, filer and just tries to uncover all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to start following this guy as well in his efforts. Uh, he pointed out on this podcast with Scott Horton that uh, um, that there used to be a published uh, counterintelligence report that was publicly available. That was the, uh, and I'm going to probably get some of this wrong, but it was the assertion by. I don't know which division. I think it was the DIA, Department of Intelligence. I know I don't know which one it is, but it was the assertion of which countries were operating with their own counterintelligence inside our borders. I think is what it was, and and to what degree was there a threat from those respective in, counterintelligence agencies from abroad? And in that list was listed Israel in the top three all the time in our in our own report. 
Right. That this that Israel's counterintelligence in inside you in, in the United States was a threat. And now that report has quietly been unpublished. It's no longer made available. And Grant goes into that as well. Does Israel have its own central bank? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Our, our number two guy, Stanley Fisher, was the head of the Israeli central bank before he became number two under Janet Yellen. And he's a well, dual U.S.-Israeli citizen. Right. That, that's what I'm getting at is would Israel permit a dual Israeli-U.S. citizen to be to hold such a high position within the Bank of Israel? Probably not, but you know yeah. that's to be determined. And you know, is this anti-Semitic to point these things out? No, it's not. It just happens to be the the nation and the uh, um, uh, that is that that this is about. It could be about you know Japan or Sweden. It doesn't right. matter. This yeah. is this is what's going on. This it is, was somebody the, that was a dual citizen between the U.S. and Japan, and they were on the Federal Reserve Board. You'd want to look into Japan, right? Right, and, and but this this FOIA, it's it's probably lost on most people what Grant was trying to uncover. Obama says publicly, due to American military and intelligence, American military and intelligence system, which my administration has provided at unprecedented levels. And Grant says in that podcast that was a that was a flag for him. That was a tell. What were the unprecedented levels? What, 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 there's there's published precedent, and Obama said it was at unprecedented levels. So it must be over and above the precedent levels. So he's trying to find out what was that, you know, what level was it? No one's refuted his reasoning for filing yet. They've just, you know, given the Heisman. Nope, there's nothing to see here. You know, you, you, you go away. Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot buried here. And th these are details that most people don't really want to care about. You know, there was a... You know, who's who? Did the Celtics win or, or did the, the, the Wizards win? You know, is what most and, people. And want to part of that, I think, is what are you going to do about it? Because a U.S. as a U.S. citizen, all you can do is jump up and complain. There is no solution, yeah. and the solution for an Article Four citizen isn't you know isn't very palatable for a lot of people. But there is a solution. These are you know these are games people are playing uh, on the world stage, and they're good at it. You know, I mean, they're just really good at it. And there will always be people who are really good at it. You know, the, the warning in the 40s and so forth was uh, uh, communists getting into the American government and that being a problem. Well, you know, the framers said every republic, a republic is just specially susceptible to foreign influence. And, you know, the it, foreigners... Most certainly, I can't think of any offhand, but most certainly there are scenarios where foreigners could become incredibly rich and powerful on the downfall of the United States. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like the collapse of the United States, but um, an example of that would be Redflex, one of the companies I love to pick on. They're an Australian company, and they're the ones that have their traffic cameras all over the place here in California. I hate those people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, everybody, thank you for tuning in this week to episode 131 of Agenda 31. We will uh, celebrate our, uh, our supporters next episode, and we'll, uh, we do appreciate those who have made a financial contribution to the effort you hear, whether you're supporting the information you read at the website, here on the podcast, or more importantly, Corey's efforts to aver Article 4 state citizenship and get standing established uh, so that the uh, um, so that the rules for us, rules for them, can actually be 
held accountable is greatly appreciated. You can subscribe for free to the blog and get updates from us periodically at agenda31.org. And once you're subscribed, you'll be a member of the blog and you can see all the recurring membership levels and or the single contribution levels there. So uh, please sign up at agenda31.org. And there's a chance that we'll be recording a next episode on a Saturday instead of a Sunday. We'll try and get a notice out to everybody. Uh, Corey, any other parting remarks before we shut her down? No, thank you, everyone. And uh, uh, listen to episode, you know, one thirty over again. It, the information there is just phenomenal. So uh, it's very thanks strong for the support. Great to have you back, Todd. Yes, the show is much smoother. Oh, no, about that. You, you, got, you guys did a good uh, job, but I did tell Kathleen that you guys you did couple takes on that i mean that was a lot of work you guys put into that show to keep it as tight as it was it was very well done yeah well and, and very little work on my part uh the guest was the one that put in a herculean effort to put all that together that that is years of research deduced into less than two hours pretty yeah, phenomenal it was, it was tight very tight well everybody keep asking yourself what is your strategy to make a difference
criminals, but we're innocent always in this jungle. share and support at agenda31.org okay guys let's get out there and make a difference you know what to do